Some time ago, the elders decided to start a series in the month of April, um, and this series was going to be over the home and over the family. And it just so happened to follow me the way everything was set up to kind of get this series started. And um, the lesson that was given to me to start this series off is to talk about God's plan for marriage. And so that's what we're going to talk about um, this morning for our sermon is um, what is God's plan for marriage? What can we learn from the scriptures about it? And I want to first kind of start off by talking about how this is um, the only way to really start talking about marriage. And it's, it's to ask, what is God's plan for marriage? In Psalms chapter 127, verse 1, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And I liken this to asking the architect or asking the designer of something about how uh, it should be used or what its purpose is. You know, if there was some new piece of technology that came out, if there was, um, you know, some, some new cell phone or some new device that came out and you wanted to use it, there would be no better person to ask about this, um, about this piece of technology and what its purpose is and how to use it than the person who designed it, than the architect of this thing. And we know that it is the Lord who, who created marriage. It is the Lord who built the home. And so it is the Lord that we should go to to ask, what is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of the home? What are the goals that we should have? How should we be using ourselves in, these, um, in this construct, this, this, in, this um, in, institution that the Lord created? What should we be doing? We need to go to God so that he can build our house and so that our labor to, to have a good marriage, our labor to have a good home is not in vain. And so with that in mind, and we're thinking about asking the designer about the plan for marriage and the purpose for marriage, we're going to go see what Jesus has to say about marriage and to learn about God's intentions when it comes to marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 8, here the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and it says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Jesus, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Looking here at the interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus, I think there are a few things that we can learn about God's intentions with marriage and the way Jesus understood marriage. The first is that it, he is going back to the, to the creation and he, he's pointing out that marriage is between a male and a female. It is a husband and a wife that were created and it is a husband and a wife that um, are joined together. And it says, Jesus says that these two people, the husband and the wife, they become one. And he says that with these two people becoming one, let not man separate. Jesus understood that God's intentions for marriage was that this union was supposed to be lifelong. 
And the Pharisees pushed back against this. They're like, well, what about divorce? Why did, why did Moses say, give a certificate of divorce and, and to put her away? And Jesus responds, reinforcing God's intentions for marriage to be lifelong by saying that's because of the hardness of your hearts that he permitted divorce to be a thing. God never intended for a man and a woman who have come together to be husband and wife to ever separate. It was always his intentions for a husband and a wife to be one forever, for, for as long as they both lived. And so we can understand from Jesus' teaching and his pushback here that the, this, the uh, seriousness involved and how if we want to know what God's intentions is in marriage and fulfill that, then we need to seek to be one with our spouse and we need to seek to be one for as long as we both live. <clears throat> the other thing that I think that we can learn from what Jesus is teaching here is that um, he understood marriage in the context of the creation story. When he says, have you not read that he, who made, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And then he says, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is coming from Genesis chapter 2. And so if we want to understand marriage as Jesus understood marriage, and it is appropriate for us to try to understand marriage in light of Genesis. And so that's where we're going to go to understand uh, fuller God's intentions with marriage. It's Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Here it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Again, I think there are a few things that really kind of come off of the page to me whenever I read this story about when God created marriage here. And the, first, and the thing that really kind of uh, jumped out at me this time as I was preparing for this sermon was the idea of companionship and how this was wrapped up in the creation of marriage here. Because God noticed that it was not good for man to be alone, and so he sought to create a companion for Adam. And there was no animal that was a sufficient companion for Adam. There was, there was no animal that could have possibly helped Adam in his... Um, in being moved from his place of being not good to a place of being good. No companion besides the woman that he created was good enough. And God, since he, he took one person and made two, he had an intention to make them one. And it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. Because they were one, they became two, and they are to be one again. And something that um, I think is, is seen from the fact that you leave your father and mother to be joined to your wife. The phrase that was used a lot for me whenever I was going through my pre-marriage counseling was um, to leave and to cleave. That whenever you leave your father and mother and you're joined to your wife, you don't necessarily like literally leave them physically. For instance, when Jesse and I got married, we spent two months living with her parents. She didn't physically leave uh, where they lived. But there was a leaving in the sense that she was being united with me and she was no longer united with her family. And so this speaks, to, I think, to how the marriage is the ultimate companionship. It is the companionship that is supposed to be lifelong and a bond that which no one can separate and which no one can possibly drive a wedge between. That marriage is supposed to be this ultimate companionship that when you look at all of the other animals in the world, you look at all of the different people in the world, you see no one who is a better companion than your spouse. And more than that, we can see at the, the very last verse here, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. In the relationship that God intended for Adam and Eve in their marriage, they were not supposed to have any shame at all. There was no shame between them. And one of the things that <clears throat> I think that I experience is that oftentimes it doesn't feel this way in my marriage. There, there are times where it doesn't feel like my wife is the greatest companion all of the time. Like There's no one better. There's, there's no one that sometimes I don't feel like we are cohesive and that, that there's no shame between us. And I wonder, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel like sometimes there is a gap between? Why do you sometimes feel like there may be a gap between you and your spouse? Genesis has an answer for this as well. When we go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. You see, in the end of Genesis chapter 2, they were naked and they were unashamed. But here in verse 7 of chapter 3, they realize they're naked and they are ashamed. They're going from unashamed to ashamed. And not what happened between then and now? Well, Genesis 3, 1 through 6, which is about the, when they committed the first sin. When they committed sin and they ate for the, from the forbidden fruits, they began to have shame. They went from being unashamed to ashamed. And so whenever I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at my marriage and I'm wondering, why do I feel some sort of chasm? Why do I feel as if there's some sort of, that, that, that there is some shame involved and I can't just be unashamed? The answer is the same answer that applied to Adam and Eve. And it's because of sin. It is because of my sin. It is because of the individual's sin that this ultimate companionship struggles to be formed, that this, this union, this bond is, struggles to be formed, this bond that God always intended where there was no shame and complete and total unity. The reason it is sometimes not felt is because of the sin in your life, the sin in my life. And this speaks to us about 
um, the seriousness about sin and how it doesn't just affect us, but it affects our marriage as well. And so I think this should give us great pause. I think this should cause us to reflect on our lives and to take our sin more seriously. Because if we want to truly be married in the way that God wants us to be married, if we want to truly have the bond that God intends, we're going to have to deal with the sin in our lives so that we can be the ultimate companion to our spouse and so that we can have this union without shame that God always intended. So to just sum up a few things here about God's intentions with marriage, it is the ultimate companionship. It is supposed to be one with no shame or schism, and it is supposed to be lifelong. Inside this marriage, there are, there are two people that have become one. And God has given uh, the, the husband and the wife different roles. And, and with the same idea in mind of, of God created man, God created woman, God created marriage. We want to go to the architect and we want to ask, what is my role supposed to be in marriage? And so for the rest of the time this morning, I'm going to be talking about what is the wife's role in marriage and what is the husband's role in marriage. And I'm going to start with the wife's role in marriage. And I want to start by, by beginning to say that it is um, not necessarily high up on the list of things I enjoy to do to tell women what they should be doing. In their marriage. So, so please do not take anything I'm going to be saying lightly. It is just me trying to give you all a picture of what God's intention is for you in your marriage. The role of the wife <clears throat> begins in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to stay there for a second. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. This is where we see that, that that woman was created, and we can see the the uh, purpose the the of the behind, the purpose behind the invention of marriage. We can see why the woman was created, and it is because Adam by himself was not good. I think this is really telling because when you go to Genesis chapter one, what you see is God said, "It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good." And the first not good thing we find is Adam here, all alone. It is not good that man should be alone. And so God says, I'm going to make a helper comparable to him. I'm going to create a companion for him. And so God creates the woman for the man. And this is taught in the scriptures that woman was created for the man. And he's created for the man because he was in this not good state. And I want to I want to talk about this for just a moment because I think that this notion of the woman being created for the man has led to um, a lot of misconceptions in our society. And I want to address that for a moment. This word helper that is describing what Eve was created for. When you when you look at the Hebrew behind it, um, other words it could mean is aid or support, or at the root word it could mean to protect. And so when God is saying, I'm going to make a helper for Adam, and he's saying, I'm going to make an aid or a support or like a protector for Adam. It's not help in the sense that we may think of it with some negative connotations where, where it may come across as if God is saying that Eve is some sort of inferior person who's going to be helping out the superior person. It's not saying that the woman is 
has this job that means nothing and is so minuscule and minute that anybody could do it. It is a job of utmost importance. When you look at the Hebrew scriptures and you see other places this word helper was used, um, in almost every single case it was used like this. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. In almost every instance that this word is translated, it is talking about how God is the helper of his people. And in this, in this particular passage, it's talking about someone who is poor and needy, who's in a dire state. And God is their, pers- their help and their deliverer. And so you tell me, you, you look at this and you read it. When you read this, do you read, You are my inferior being and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. You are my slave and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. This is not the way it reads at all. If anything, help here is talking about this poor and needy person being rescued from their dire states and how the Lord is going to save this person from where they are. And I think this same sort of connotation is being mapped onto what's going on with Adam and with Eve here, where Adam is in this dire state of being not good. He's the first thing to be declared not good and that he's alone. And Eve is being created to rescue him from this. And I think this is especially um, helpful. This is especially insightful when, when I compare it to the different movies and the different things that I've read my entire life. We're going back for centuries. We can read literature of, of there being a damsel in distress, and the big strong man comes and saves the damsel from distress from the, from the mighty villain or something like this. And how this is standing in contrast to the Hebrew scriptures here, which teach us that woman was created in a very different way, where, where it wasn't the woman that was in distress, but it was the man that was in distress. And the woman is coming and saving the man from distress. That here in, the, in Genesis chapter 2, the man is in a dire state, a not good state, and the woman is coming and rescuing him from this state. And so when we talk about woman being created for man, this is not something that should create a superiority complex. This is not something that should be demeaning or degrading. It is something that provides purpose and clarity to the role of the wife. And that you have a purpose, and that is to be this ultimate companion for the man. Because left to his own devices, left alone, man is in a not good state. And the wife can help him in that. Moving to the New Testament to further discuss the role of the wife, we have Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, and then verse 33. Here it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There are three things here that I would like to draw out of Ephesians chapter 5 as it pertains to the role of the wife. The first is that it says that the wife is is supposed to submit. That the husband is the one that is supposed to lead the home, that is the wife that is supposed to submit to him. 
And I think what this speaks to is, is when there is a disagreement and there has to be a decision that is made, the wife needs to try to submit to that. And in particular, you should submit just as the church is subject to Christ. And the way I think about this is that when we sub submit ourselves to Christ, we are to do so not begrudgingly. That we submit ourselves to Christ not with a chip on our shoulder. We don't submit to Christ just, you know, really bitter towards him because of the decisions that he's made. But we try to do so not begrudgingly. And this is the role that the wife seems to be seems to have in Ephesians chapter 5. That she is supposed to submit in this way. And I think this can manifest itself in a few different ways. But one of the ways that I thought of was that there is no manipulation. You do not try to run your husband over. You do not try to make him form to your will, but you 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 help him form to the will of God and 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 lead as he's supposed to. And you don't manipulate him into having your way. You you submit to Christ and you submit to your husband as he tries to lead you. This isn't to say that your husband's never going to make mistakes. This isn't to say that your husband's decision is always going to be the better decision between yours and his. But it is the role that you are called to follow. And we need to honor God's role. We need to honor the architect and the designer of marriage. The third thing that I want to point out is, this, um, is verse 33 where it says that the wife should respect her husband. I think this is another thing that can look a little bit differently in various marriages. You know, what exactly makes your husband feel disrespected that may be different for you than for me. Um, for instance, it, you know, I don't feel disrespected when Jesse may make a joke about my hair, but you may feel disrespected when Jesse, or I mean, excuse me, your wife makes a joke about your hair. And so that's, a, this is where communication has to be had, where you communicate with your wife and you tell her, you know, I really felt disrespected when you said this to me. So she knows, she knows how she can fulfill her role better when you communicate these sort of things to her. But there's one particular application of this that I think is going to be universal. And it's not disrespecting your husband behind his back. There's, there's no going to your gal pals or other guys or your boss and talking negatively and badly about your husband when he's not around. It's showing respect to your husband even when he's not there and trying to talk about more of his good qualities and his negative qualities so that the people who are around you can see your marriage and, and, and your um, husband as someone who is respectable. Because if you are someone who is causing others to not feel respect towards your husband, then you are not fulfilling this role. For more on this, I highly suggest going and reading Proverbs chapter 31 about the virtuous woman. Second verse, last verse, I mean, about um, the role of the woman is 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6. There's more that we could read, but for time's sake, we're going we're gonna to move on after this one. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. 
For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Two points that I want to point out from here. The first is addressing women who are married to unbelievers. It says that when you fulfill your role as God calls you to, you can win your husband over. I think this speaks to, to the power in fulfilling the role that God has called you to. That's, that you doing what God wants you to do in your marriage can help save the soul of your husband. And I think that speaks to the power for those women who are in that state. But I also think it speaks to the power of fulfilling your role for women who are not in that state. Because you can see just how impressionable and influ influence, influential it is when you fulfill the role that God has called you to fulfill. The second thing from this passage is this contrast about the outward appearance and the inward appearance. And how it is much more important for you to be concerned about your inward appearance than your outward appearance. And so just to, to be short and frank about this, the way I think about it is however much time you spend on your hair, on your makeup, on your clothes, it should pale in comparison to the time you spend in God's Word, in applying it to your life, in prayer, and seeking to have a Christ-like humility in your life. So to sum up the role of the wife, you were created to rescue men from being alone by himself. And so don't leave him alone by himself. Do not leave your husband alone by himself. Be with him and help him. You are to submit, not begrudgingly. You are to respect your husband. And you are to focus more on your character than your looks. Lastly, we're going to address the role of the husband. I've got two passages here that we're going to talk about as, uh, as we close. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 29 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spots or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. I could um, beat up on the husbands and myself for the next 30 minutes. Um, but I'm not going to do that. We, uh, we know that the husband is the head of the wife. We just talked about how the husband is supposed to be the leader. And I just want to reinforce that. The husband is the leader. You need to take that burden off of your wife of leading. And yes, leading is a burden. And it's not a burden that your wife is supposed to bear. It is a burden that you are supposed to bear as the husband. And as you lead your wife... You are supposed to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I like, uh, I really think this is helpful in terms of thinking about what well, the wife is supposed to submit to the husband that seems so demeaning. 
Um, well, what's the husband supposed to do? The husband is supposed to live self-sacrificially for the wife. And so you've got this thing going full circle here. Let me see if I can get it right. You've got this thing going full circle here where the wife is submitting to the husband, but the husband is, is living self-sacrificially for his wife. He is leading in a servant-like manner, putting not his own concerns first, but his wife's concerns first. He's putting his wife's holiness and her needs before his own. And so if you are a husband and you take no care or whatsoever for what your wife needs, you do not think for a second moment about the holiness of your wife and what you can do to help her be Christ-like, you're failing. You're failing to love your wife as Christ loved the church. When I do that, when I have one day where I come home and I expect my wife to do everything for me and I do not seek to help her be more Christ-like in that day, I fail to be the husband that God wants me to be. It is your job as the husband to lead your wife to God, to make his truth your truth, no one else's. And his truth compels you to serve your wife and to lead her closer to Jesus. The next passage is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. We just read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, talking about the role of the wife. And right after talking about this, it says this. Right after talking about the role of the wife, it says this. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. I want to talk about what this means for a second. What does it mean to dwell with your wife with understanding? Well, given the context where it, just before that, it's been about the wife's submission. And I think that's exactly what this is talking about. You live with your wife understanding her role and her role is to submit. And how do you understand that? It means to be empathetic. It means to realize that it's not always easy to submit. It's not always easy to do what someone asks you to do when you totally disagree. And so that means you can't be harsh and you can't be like a bull running her over. You have to live with her with understanding, giving her honor because her job is hard. Your job is hard. Her job is hard. Give her honor. Give her honor. Don't run her over. Treat her as the weaker vessel. Don't bully her. Don't oppress her and use your role, use your role as some sort of authoritarian figure. Treat her like a fellow heir of grace. And if you fail to do this, it says that your prayers will be hindered. That you dwell with your wife with understanding and give her honor so that your prayers cannot be hindered. And I think this allows us, these two passages we've just read, allows us to address uh, a modern topic that comes up today. And it is this idea of toxic masculinity. And I think we can, we can address this issue by understanding what biblical masculinity is from these two passages. From these two passages, we can see that biblical masculinity is taking lead through serving God first and your wife second. You're not serving yourself. You are serving your God first and your wife second. Biblical masculinity is molding to the will of God and not to your wife or your children. You should not be like a, a water in the glass, which is your family. You should be like water in the glass, which is God, molding to that form, looking deeply into God's truths and pointing the rest of your family in that direction and taking the burden of leading off of your wife. Do not be apathetic to choices and decisions that have to be made. 
lead, take that burden off of your wife, sacrifice for her, because some of these decisions are really hard and she has enough on her plates as it is. Take it off of her and help her in her pursuits of holiness. That's biblical masculinity in 30 seconds or so. There's way more we could be saying here. But there's also a toxic masculinity, according to the Bible. And it is a masculinity that, that never leads, that never, ever leads. That is always just like, no, wife, you make all of the decisions. You make all of the hard choices. You do this, you do that. You, no, I don't care. It's just whatever. You know, the way we feel about which curtains to hang or something. But about everything. This is not leading. This is, and this is toxic to your family. On the, con on the flip side of this would be toxic masculinity is leading, but like a bull running your family over, abusing with your power and position and paying no care whatsoever to the desires of your wife and children or being so stubborn that you're never admitting that you're wrong. This is the sort of masculinity that is toxic to your wife, to your family, and to you because your prayers will be hindered when you do not live with your wife in this way. And so as a husband, if you are trying to seek to honor God, lead, but lead like Christ led. Be a servant. Put your wife's needs and her wants before your own. Put God's needs, God's wants and God's will before your own and before your families. In summary, I just wanted to, to put all of these three things on the screen so that you could see them, you could reflect on them, you could think about what God's role, God's intention for marriage is, what God intends for you as a wife, what God intends for you as a husband, what he intends for both of you in your marriage. Fulfill your role as husband and as wife so that you can have this ultimate companionship in which you are one with no shame lifelong. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you for your patience. I hope this has been encouraging to you, and I hope that this is helpful for you. If you need prayers in your marriage, you need prayers for your family, um, the church is, it wants to pray for you. Get in contact with one of the elders. Get in contact with one of your brother and sisters and say, I need prayers because we all want to pray for you. We all want to pray for one another. Thank you.